0: Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Habakkuk 2 today, finishing out uh, this chapter. And then uh, the plan is we'll spend one more week next Sunday. We'll finish out the book of Habakkuk with chapter 3. What has been a very heavy and at times difficult uh, book will end in one of the greatest songs of praise in all of scripture. Habakkuk does a full 180 as he comes to the end of this book. But for today, we're going to pick up again. And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Habakkuk found himself in the watchtower. That the Lord had had led him into this place that represented the security of God's people. The watchtower was the, the place from which the watchman would watch for approaching enemies coming toward the city. He would be the one to sound the alarm if there was danger inside. And, and Habakkuk goes up into the watchtower not to look and see what the enemy is doing, but to hear a clearer word about what God Habakkuk has come to the Lord with many questions, as we've seen. He has wrestled over some deep things and some deep things that we also need to wrestle over. What is God doing in those times when it seems like the wicked abound and flourish and the godly seem to diminish and suffer? And so as we look this morning at Habakkuk 2, God begins to to lay out a fuller answer to that question of what he is doing and what he will ultimately do in regard to the wicked and those who who choose not to turn to him in repentance and faith. And so we see today these woes from the watchtower, five woes that, that Matt outlined there for us, and we're going to go a little bit deeper. And to be really honest with you, I wish that we had a week to spend with each of these because there's a lot of depth here. And so I'm going to kind of skim the surface a little bit, but I pray it'll be helpful to us as we see these woes that are, again, not just for these folks who were living several thousand years ago, but they are woes that we need to listen to. So so what is a woe? As we think about that word, that's not a word that we use a lot today. Uh, We need to understand that a a woe is a a warning of impending judgment. This is a giant caution sign that God is throwing up saying, beware of these things because these things will lead to dire consequences. And those consequences would come upon the Babylonians. They were one of the, the shortest Uh, empires that has ever ruled in the world. They lasted less than a 100 years, which is really short for any empire. God raised them up for his purposes, as we've seen in Scripture, and God would tear them down shortly thereafter. And so as we think about these woes, uh, H.A. Ironside had a great quote that I wanted to share with you. He said, the woes follow not only The woes that follow not only apply to the king of Babylon and his cruel, relentless armies, but they also declare the mind of God regarding any who are in the same unholy ways. And so it's important for us as we look at these woes to take them personally to hear these con- these cautions and not just to think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. That's good for somebody else, but I don't really need that. By the way, whenever we come to the Word of God, we need to be very careful when we say, well, I don't really need that. We need all of the counsel of God's Word, and this is no different This morning. So let's jump into these five woes. I'll try to work through them uh, fairly quickly. But the first of these, the first woe, is what I would call a woe against shattering indebtedness. He he uses the, the terminology of debt to describe what the Babylonians had racked up as they had gone nation to nation taking that which did not belong to them. Now there are all kinds of different views about debt and whether it should be accumulated by followers of Christ today. We're not going to get into that this morning, but there's definitely a warning here related to racking up debt and, and 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 taking that which does not belong to you. That ultimately those debts must be paid. It's related to this Principle that we see throughout the scriptures and it's found in Galatians chapter 6. This idea of sowing and reaping. And so the, the question that comes as we look at these first few verses is this. Will we not reap what we sow? This is a Old Testament idea, a New Testament idea, a truth in God's word from cover to cover. We see again and again in the Scriptures examples of those who reap what they sow, both for good and for ill. As Galatians six seven says, those who reap to the flesh will sow, those who sow to the flesh will reap destruction, and those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. There's a reaping and a sowing. There's a, there's a nature by which in the, that God has created this universe in which that we have consequences for our actions. That's true in this day, that we have consequences for our actions. We will reap what we sow. And and if we consider that in light of the sinful nature and the rebellion against God in which we were born, that would leave us in a very hopeless position. If that's the only rule at work in God's universe, then we're in big trouble. If the only rule is you reap what you sow, you'll get what you deserve, then we are in a very precarious position, except... For grace except for the gift of faith we talked about this last week really as we begin these woes today we need to understand the very first thing God does before launching into the woes is he gives this amazing promise that I spent a lot of time on last Sunday this promise the first promise is this that the righteous shall live by faith so the law of sowing and reaping says that we deserve death Because of our sinful rebellion against God. But the law of faith says that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, we don't get what we deserve if we're trusting in Jesus. There has been something that has overcome what we deserve. We've been delivered by His grace and by faith we find eternal life. We're clothed in. Once again, in His righteousness. Man, I love these verses from Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at Colossians on Wednesday nights, and, and we may eventually get to these verses. But Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, and says, "In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you who were dead, God made alive together with Him." With Christ having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And how did he do that? The next verse tells you by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's the great thing God did He didn't just absolve us of our consequences or sweep them under some kind of spiritual rug. He took our consequences upon Himself. That's the greatness of His grace. The debt could not simply be wiped out as if it had never happened. It had to be paid. And that's why Jesus' final words on the cross were, Tetelestai, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. And church, we have so much to rejoice in that we will not be treated as our sins deserved if we are trusting in Christ. The debt has been paid. It has been paid in full. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. The second woe this morning is a woe against selfish indulgence. And again, the theme here is of safety and security. And isn't that a hot button issue today? And I could get into a lot of trouble if I shared some of my thoughts about safety and security. So I'm just going to stay with what the Word has to say today. You can ask me later if you want to know. But the, the question that's coming out in these next few verses, in verses 9 through 11, is this. Will our source of security ultimately fail? What, what are we trusting in? What are we trusting in in these days and will that source of security, will it prove to be a lasting source of security or will it ultimately come up short? You see, if we're trusting in our finances, we're seeing a shaky economy right now, aren't we? If we're trusting in our finances or the finances that the government might give us, we're in dangerous waters. If we are trusting in our health, in our physical fitness, in our own ability to overcome this virus, we are on shaky ground. Remember what Jesus said about the man who built his house in the sand versus the one who built his house on the rock. And there are all kinds of sandy foundations upon which we might build our lives. We'll come back to some of those before we finish this morning. But the question is, where is your source of security? What are you trusting in and will it be lasting? Jeremiah 16 He said, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth, and they will say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. Our inheritance was empty. These nations that worship false gods, there was a false sense of security for those who worship the Baals and the Molechs and the Ashtoreths. And there's a false sense of security for those who, who worship at the altar of their bank account and the altar of their physical health and the altar of their own prosperity and the altar of their own success. There's a hollowness there. There's an inheritance of lies that's been passed down from generation to generation. But the truth of God's word points us to something that's truly secure. And notice this. This reality that we see as we look at verse 11 where he says, For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's as if the stones are making a proclamation and the beams, the woodwork, are crying out an echo. And, and we see this, and the, the picture is this. These were trophies that the Babylonians had gained from other nations. They had stolen their great stones to build their own buildings. They had stolen their great beams to build their own structures. And the picture is this, that one day our tainted trophies may very well join the taunt against us. The things that we have devoted our entire lives to gaining may one day cry out in opposition to us. That's the danger of spending all of our lives running after worldly success. That's the danger of spending all of our lives looking for the bigger paycheck. That's the danger of living all of our lives with our children as idols. Worshipping those who have come from our own loins. That's the danger of spending all of our lives chasing after education and a greater understanding of the things of this world. There are so many dangers that we could talk about this morning, so many idols that we could be worshiping, so many things that we could be trusting in. And one day, those who are not trusting in Christ will find those very things crying out against them. Just as happened with the Babylonians, there's a danger here. But it also reminds us of what Jesus said. Remember as he was going into Jerusalem to face the cross. The people were shouting out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They were worshiping him. Some of those same people a week later would be calling for his crucifixion. But Jesus, if the religious leader said, hey, shut those people up, Jesus. What do, you, what do they think they're doing? And Jesus answered, I tell you this. If these folks were silent, the very stones would cry out. Church, we cannot be silent in this day. Lest God cause the stones to cry out. We have a story to tell to the nations. We need not be silent. Woe number three is a woe against serious injustice. So we think about injustice this morning. The case this last couple of weeks of Ahmed Arbery has been a reminder that we live in a world of imperfect justice. That justice deferred is justice denied. And it so often is in our world today. There are so many injustices we could not even begin to list them all. And yet... Here is this reminder in verses 12 through 14, this beautiful reminder that God is the only one who can enact perfect justice. As Genesis 18:25 says, "Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just?" And the answer is, yes, He will. He will make it all right. Perfectly right. Perfect justice will be ultimately put on display. It's not yet, but it's coming. And we can trust in that. We can find rest and peace in that. We can know that while justice in the current time is imperfect and often deferred and often ignored altogether, We can know that one day the judge of all the earth will do exactly that which is right and good and perfect. And that's what we're trusting in. And that's what Habakkuk begins to trust in, knowing that God would enact justice on the wicked Babylonians. And it wasn't going to be very long, historically speaking. O. Palmer Robinson said that the Lord declares that day will come when all those nations whom the Chaldeans have bullied shall mock their conqueror. That the Babylonians would ultimately, ultimately be a laughing stock in terms of the history of the world. They spoke so pridefully and so loudly of their strength. They spoke of how they were the greatest nation that that had ever lived. They would never be conquered by anyone. There was so much prideful language put on display by the Babylonians as they worshipped their own strength and their own ability to keep themselves at the top of the social ladder. But God said one day, all those who have been denied justice by the Babylonians, all those who have been oppressed and mistreated, all those who have been downtrodden and put under their boot, they will stand in chorus together and they will mock the one who once made a mockery of them. There's such a reversal here. God is all about the reversal of the things of this world. And then comes a promise again. I love right in the midst of these woes, in the midst of the heaviness of these warnings of impending judgment, God is planting promises all along the way. And it's so important that we see these. They're so huge. In fact, I encourage you to underline verse 14, even as I encouraged you last week to underline verse 4 and verse 14 Another beautiful promise from God. And the promise is this, that the earth will be filled with His glory. And look at how He says it. I love the imagery here that the Lord gives to Habakkuk when he says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Filled how? As the waters cover the sea. So how do the waters cover the sea? Completely. Utterly. Fully. Fully. There is not one inch of the sea that is not covered by the waters, by God's design. There is a fullness a filling here that's being described. And we look around and we say, well, well, we don't see this. We see God's glory in certain things, but we also see destruction and the devastation of sin and death in our world. And so there are places where we see the glory of God, and there's other places where we don't yet. And that's where we are. We're in that in-between place. But we see the glory of God being more and more fully revealed. And, and how does that happen? The glory of God is more and more fully revealed. Fully revealed as more and more people come to know Him by faith in Jesus. That's how the glory of God is spread primarily in our day. As we share the good news of this great salvation, the glory of God goes forth. The kingdom of God expands as more and more hearts become devoted to Him by faith. And so Acts 1 8 takes on a new meaning. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why to the ends of the earth? Partly because of Habakkuk 2.14. This promise that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why there has to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne in the end because He is not content that any nation, any people group be left out of the mix. His glory must ultimately be covering all that He has created and known to be so. Woe number four is a a woe against shameful immorality. If you read these verses, they are so, so graphic. It's an ugly picture of the Babylonians mistreating other nations by getting them drunk only to see them naked. It's, it's a hideous picture. But it's a picture of what sin does. That sin loves to engage in these kinds of hideous, immoral acts. But God says ultimately all those who have been shamed by you, Babylon, ultimately you're going to be the one who's going to be shamed. The wicked in this world will ultimately reap what they sow if they do not come to repentance and faith. That's the warning of Scripture. But there's a question here again for us that we need to be asking. The question is this. So will we then pursue earthly success and gain eternal shame? There is a glory that can be received in this world that will one day be turned on its head and the glory will be turned to shame. That's what he says to the Babylonians. Your glory, everyone's been worshiping you because you've made them to do so. Everyone's been looking to you as the greatest of all time and yet there's going to come a day when you're going to be greatly dishonored. Even as we think about the name Babylon today, those that know anything about the scriptures know the word, the name Babylon has a, a negative connotation. We don't think about anything good when we think about Babylon. Everything related to Babylon has a, a dark mark against it. The same may be true of us. We can gain great glory in this world only to find that ultimately our glory is turned to shame because we weren't trusting in the God of all glory. We were glory thieves stealing what did not rightfully belong to to us and leading others to do the same. I think Albert Schweitzer helps us to kind of work through some of this as we think about some of these issues. He says, anything that you have that you cannot give away, you do not really own, it owns you. I want you to think about that for a moment. So we think about all the things that we get attached to in this world. Anything you have that you cannot give away, you don't really own it. It owns you. And so many of us, we are owned by our possessions. We are possessed by the material things of this world. We are possessed by relationships that we hold in higher esteem than our relationship with the Lord. We are possessed and owned by our search for success, for prosperity, for better health, for you can just make the list go on and on and on. But the reality that we see here is this. Someone must drink the cup. Of God's wrath against sin. We say that again. Someone must drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. We see that picture of the cup of God's wrath. All throughout the Old Testament. This constant reminder that the wrath of God will be poured out upon sin. We will reap what we sow. God will do what is just. And that involves His righteous wrath against rebellious sinners. And so we we were reminded here in these verses of this cup. The very same cup that the Babylonians had made other nations drink. The cup of their wrath would be replaced with a much grander cup, the cup of God's wrath. And someone would have to drink it. The cup is in the Lord's right hand. And it will come around to you, he says, and utter shame will come upon your glory. But church, let us be reminded today, someone has drank the cup on our behalf. The cup of God's wrath has been emptied by God's Son on our behalf. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus was considering the cup of Habakkuk 2, verse 16 and recognizing the, the wrath of God is no joke. And folks, we need to be reminded today, the wrath of God is no joke. And we are sharing the good news of salvation in Christ with others so that they might not have to drink the cup of God's wrath, but instead would be trusting in the one who has already drained it completely so that we could be rescued. Finally this morning, we see the fifth woe A woe against senseless idolatry. There are several places in scripture where it's described, where this idolatry is is described. But again, as Matt said earlier, the best place I think is Romans chapter 1. I'd encourage you to go read that in your own time. But the main question of Romans chapter 1 as we get to Romans 1.25 is this. Will we exchange the truth of God for the lie? Now I know that most translations of Romans 25 say exchange the truth about God for a lie. But I think it can also be translated even more accurately for the lie. It's not just any old lie. It's the lie that there can be something in the place of God and that's okay. It's the lie that Godly that that God substitutes, which is what an idol is. It's a God replacement. It's the lie of the God replacement that God's going to be okay with that. That God's just going to go, hey, no big deal. I know you did your best. You tried your hardest. You, You did you did the most you could. No, when we exchange the truth of God for the lie, we are rejecting His offer of grace in Christ. And it's a dangerous predicament. Again, Romans one twenty five says about the, those who are caught up in their sin. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. This is why us coming together in worship is so crucial that we again and again reject the lie and embrace the truth. That's something that we do when we come together on Sunday mornings. We are seeking to reject the lie and embrace the truth because if we have a culture that is constantly putting the lie before us and saying, worship this, worship that, give your honor to this, give your glory to that. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. We could talk so much about idolatry, but I'll just let it lie for now. Because Habakkuk ends this chapter with one final promise. As he considers the lifeless idols, those that cannot speak and cannot hear, the false gods that people pray to, that have no ability, ability to answer. Look how he ends this chapter, and I encourage you as well to underline Habakkuk 320, just as you did. Habakkuk 2.4, 2.14, and 2.20. The Lord, he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The first promise was, the righteous shall live by faith. The second promise, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover The sea and the final promise, the one that'll send us out today is this that the Lord is reigning over all.
1: And I know we've said things along this line a
0: lot lately, but church, I think it's the greatest reminder that we need in this day that God is on his throne, there is nothing outside of his control. He is neither unaware nor unable to deal with the difficulties we're experiencing right now. And you see for a people like the people of Judah who were reading what Habakkuk wrote down from God was they were reading these woes. This is a great matter of assurance because the reality is they were facing the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians shortly hereafter. Their days of destruction were yet to come and yet even before the days of destruction God is setting forth a promise To say to them, don't forget, God is on His throne. He is ruling and reigning over everything. And so you don't have to lose heart because the righteous live by faith. You don't have to lose heart because the promise that the glory of the Lord will one day cover all of the earth. And you need not lose heart because God is on His throne. So I'll leave you with Philippians 2. Three weeks from now, we're going to be diving into the book of Philippians. And I'm really looking forward to spending this summer in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. But Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The righteous shall live by faith because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. The glory of the Lord shall cover the entire earth because of the resurrection power that He brought forth three days after His crucifixion. And we know that our God reigns over all in complete sovereignty and supremacy because King Jesus is on the throne. And, church, we can rest in that. Even as we continue to wrestle through these days and the kinds of questions that the book of Habakkuk leads us toward, we can rest in this word. This is the word that will lead to the glorious song of praise in the next chapter the reminder that God is on the throne, He is in control, and He is most worthy of our praise. Let's pray together. Father, may we be the ones that would join in this chorus today. We know there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we want to make that profession today. And not just rest in a profession that was made years ago. But be renewed in that profession today that Jesus is Lord. He is the King above all kings he is ruling and reigning. And it is only because of His grace that these woes will not be applied to us. Because we are not trusting in our own ability. We are not seeking after shameful immorality. We are running hard after the One who came to rescue us. And we pray, Father, fix our eyes on Jesus, the Author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now at this very moment seated at the right hand of God in glory, the King above all kings. Because King Jesus is on the throne, we have nothing to fear and no reason to falter. We are not of those who shrink back, but of those who press on. And we press on in your kingdom work to share this glorious gospel, the good news of King Jesus with the peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. May it begin right here in our own community. But we may we not be, may we not settle just for that. But may our heart's desire be. To be a part of seeing your glory covering all the earth. Father, as we behold you this morning, may we become more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name.